Well, it is a good morning to uh, all of you, and uh, you know, it's my first time here, but I hope that, my only hope though this week was that the Word of God would be preached and proclaimed accurately and boldly and would be applied clearly, and so, you know, I looked over at, uh, there's a B right here, and uh, Martin Luther said that the pulpit should be a throne for the Word of God, and so... Anytime someone comes up here, you look at the B and don't think bell, but you just think Bible, and then everything will be okay. Well, I was pondering for a couple of weeks uh, what to preach to you all this morning, and uh, went through a lot of things in my mind, and uh, you know, so many things come up, so many texts, so many passages on your heart, and uh, I don't know how a week uh, I landed upon 2 Peter 3, 8 to 13, but definitely wanted to bring to you a word that would be very general in nature, uh, meaning that it would be wide in scope, would cover a lot of ground, would cover a lot of um, your life, so to speak, and would be just a big theme, a theme that all of us have to face inevitably, that all of us have to encounter and that really involve us to the fullest extent. And so, because of that, and prayerfully committing it to the Lord, I landed upon Second Peter 3, 8-13, to and the end of the world. Well, American poet T.S. Eliot wrote this. He said, Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. And I believe that our entire Western culture and specifically our West Coast culture, seems to be predicated on this very idea that we don't want to face the inevitable. We see it most vividly in our never-ending quest for the perfect body, the perfect face, you know, perfect health. We try so desperately you know, to stave off the inevitable of old age and death, and we try to hold back time, but we can't. You know, we see gyms everywhere, workout programs and diets galore on TV and everywhere you turn. We have Botox and facelifts and every sort of cosmetological procedure you can think of they've got to fix you up and make you younger. And uh, any kind of a sham fountain of youth pill or ointment or gel or cream they've come up with so that you'd buy it. And you'd be young, too. Well, the very idea of the end, of a finality, of, of the curtain closing on this world is a haunting thought for most of the world. It is a haunting and depressing, and albeit very sorrowful thought. So much so that some people have actually chosen right, to cryogenically get frozen so that in the future, if they ever find a cure for death or for their disease, they would be thought out cured and back into the real world. The idea of the end is not necessarily the most pleasant thought to think of. But it is a biblical thought. Indeed, the entire New Testament is pervaded by the idea of the return of Christ, by the end times, that Christ indeed is coming back. You cannot escape perusing through the New Testament and facing your Creator, who will, in the end, judge you, and who will, in the end, through that judgment, 
destroy this world. And so this morning, as we turn to 2 Peter 3, 8 to 13, we are going to be studying the three dimensions of the end of the world, the three dimensions of Christ's return, and ultimately where that leads us in studying eschatology and studying the end times is right back to ourselves. That as we study this cosmic destruction on a scale unimaginable, what happens is that we face not only our own mortality, but we face our own immortality. We face where are we going to stand at the end? On what side of the line will we be standing? Indeed, as we come into this text, we will face two questions. Basically, are we going to stay as we are in light of Christ's return? Or are we going to be transformed by thinking upon it, by meditating upon it, by realizing that this is true, that this is going to happen, and that Christ will face us, each and every one of us. So if you will turn your attention to verses 8 to 13, our brother Francis has read it for us. Um, let me just read it again one more time with all of you. Starting from verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, and here's the application to us, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A quick overview of Second Peter chapter 3, uh, 1 to 7, before we get into our text. The problem in Second Peter is false teachers. And that was the problem the early church faced. Even one generation after Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father, the church was riddled with false teachers. You can imagine it. Only 30 years after the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, the church was being bombarded by false teaching and the teachers that represented those doctrines. In verses 1 to 4, Peter gives kind of a general warning against those false teachers who he calls mockers, or some of your texts may have scoffers, those who would ridicule Christ's return. And they follow after their own lusts. In 5 to 7, in verses 5 to 7, he gives a rebuke against the mockers, against the false teachers who deny and who ridicule and scorn the return of Christ. And he bases it explicitly on the Old Testament. And if you notice there, he speaks about creation and he speaks about the flood, what we're going through in the book of Genesis in our midweek flocks. And he rebukes them because he says, God's word created the heavens and the earth in verse 5. God's word destroyed the world with water in verse 6. And in verse 7 he says, God's word will destroy the heavens and the earth in the future. And all of this based upon Old Testament 
revelation. And so he gives a warning and he gives a rebuke. And the warning and the rebuke, of course, fall to the church people themselves, to the believers and to us because of our quickness to forget about the return of Christ. And so many of these believers were infected by this thinking that, you know what, where is the promise of his coming? He said he was coming back. All of you have taught he's coming back. But it's been 30 years. It's been 35 years. He's not coming back, is he, after all? And really, why they denied the return of Christ was this, to satisfy their own desires and lusts. To, un- to live out an immoral and unholy life required them to abolish in their minds the return of Christ. Because if Christ is coming back, what's going to happen is there's going to be an accounting for your life. And so if there's an accounting for your life, the last thing you would want to do, you would want to think about as an immoral person, as a person who wants to live out their lust, live out your desires, is to have to think about the fact that every moment of your life will have to be called into account. That your whole life, generally, right, will have to be under the review of the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. And so, as we dive into our texts, the background has been established. False teachers have poured scorn on this whole idea that Christ is coming. And not only that, but that there's going to be some catastrophic judgment associated with His coming. And so, He rebukes these people and He tells them in verse 5, for when they maintain this, when they maintain that everything's going to stay the same and Christ is not going to come back, it escapes their notice. Look at that uh, phrase there, it escapes their notice. Because in verse 8, Peter begins with the very same verb in verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. And so even as he warned the false teachers, don't let this escape your notice, right? God did this once, he can do it again. Now he turns his attention explicitly to the believers that he's addressing and he tells them, don't forget, be mindful, don't let this escape your notice. How foolish to think that God, who created all things and destroyed the world once, couldn't do it again, right? And that's basically what they were saying. They were making a mockery of the nature of God. In verse 5, if you look there again, it says that they maintain this idea. They maintain that nature will stay the same and nothing will interrupt the course of human history. They maintain it. The word there has this idea of a conviction that you hold when everything else says you're wrong. Contrary to the true state of affairs, these people were holding on to this idea that Christ would not return, that the earth would just remain, would stay as it is. This is not then ignorance. Okay, These false teachers were not just ignorant. They were not just deceived by someone else. This is not being naive. But this is, in fact, willful disobedience in the face of the clear teaching of the Old Testament that the world has not and will not always remain the same. And interestingly enough, these false teachers, they weren't some outside rogue group looking to uh, hunt down Christians, but these were part of the church. These were wolves that grew up amongst us, the sheep. And here they are planting a seed of distrust in the Word of God in the believers of 2 Peter telling them that the world would not be destroyed, telling them that Christ would not return, telling them that everything would continue as before. And of course, this had disastrous effects on their lives, leading to ungodliness and immorality, and would of course have disastrous effects on the lives of the believers that Peter is exhorting to not forget. So these Christians, 
in an atmosphere where this doctrine was being sown needed reassurance. As believers, they needed confidence that indeed Christ would return and set things right. That Christ would return and wrap up world history and take him back to who? To himself, right? That he prepared a place for all of us and he's coming back, right? Right, Peter? And Peter says, absolutely, he is coming back. As believers in a world hostile to Christ, they were looking forward to this. They were looking forward to the end when, when everything would be balanced out and truth and justice and righteousness would reign upon the earth. And so Peter, lovingly as a shepherd, as a pastor, as an elder, reminds, them, the, reminds these believers that Christ indeed is coming back. In verses 8 to 9, he gives them two arguments, in the, uh, two arguments to reassure Christians about the delay of God's judgment. That, yes, there is a delay. Indeed, he's not coming back. He hasn't come back yet for 30 or 35 years or so. But let me give you two arguments to show you, to prove to you, that this delay is not just some flippant exercise on the mind of God, but that this delay has a great purpose. So, we're going to be looking at the delay of God's judgment. And in verse 8, the first point under number one there in your outline is this, that God's perception of time is not ours. Man's timetable, God's timetable, you have the temporal and the eternal. His perception of time is not our perception of time. Notice that he calls his audience beloved, and he does that four times in this chapter. And I believe he does that because he's really putting his arm around them and reassuring them and boosting, uh, boosting their morale and their confidence that things will be set straight. And more than that, by calling them beloved, he's reminding them that in the eyes of God that they are beloved and not forgotten by Christ, not forgotten by God, that God has set his love and affection upon them and that he would endure, indeed return as a shepherd to take his sheep back with him. And so, as he calls them beloved, he reminds them, that word again, not to let this escape their notice. So, what is this fact that he wants them to be mindful of? What is this one truth that they must not cast aside? And it's this, that God's return being, quote-unquote, delayed, has to be seen in the light of God's view of time. It has to be seen in the light of God's view of time. Here, Peter quotes, actually, Psalm 90 Verse 4, and you don't have to turn there, but he's quoting the Old Testament. And in Psalm 90, verse 4, the psalmist writes, actually the psalmist is Moses, he writes, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. For a thousand years are like yesterday. Right? A day is like a thousand, a thousand is like a day. God can see the broad sweep of history in a moment, yet He can stretch out a day with patient care. And it's interesting, as, we, as these false teachers were probably thinking about God's quote-unquote patience, God's slowness, they were getting upset, they were getting disturbed, frustrated. Well, He's not coming back. You know? It's easy for us to get impatient. It's easy for us to get quickly kind of unnerved when things don't move along as we like them to. All of you here surf TV channels or have done so. How many of you, like, when it's on a commercial, have to go to the next channel? And you have to keep on going to the next channel until something catches your eye. And then 
you get to that program, and then, some, and then another commercial comes on, so you have to keep on cycling through the channels, right? We get impatient real quickly. In our fast-paced, instant gratification world, delay or pause is not a good thing, right? If you were marketing a product and you said, this is really slow, this is going to slow down your life, this is going to put a lot of delay and pause in your life, I don't think people are going to buy that gizmo, that gadget. It's not a very catchy thing. We want our food. We want our cars. We want our internet connections. We want everything in our life to be fast, to be quick, to be convenient, and to be at the push of a button. And maybe that's not even fast enough, right? Sitting and listening to a long message on a Sunday morning, every Sunday morning is becoming more and more of a freakish blip on the radar screen of evangelicalism like what we do here this morning. But remember, God's patience and God's timing is not measured by our patience and our timing. God who is above time. God who lets centuries and millennia pass by as He works out His sovereign purpose. For Him, that's normal. Right? That's how He operates. It defines how He works in this world. But the Christians who were opening up their ears to the false teachers were forgetting this truth about God, that God is patient. With Him, there is deliberation. There is an exacting kind of slowness. And in verse 9, right, He gives them the purpose for the delay. He said, God's timetable is not our timetable. But more than that, that's not enough. God's timetable is not our timetable because of one very, very good reason. And that is this that God's delay equals a loving patience. That God's delay is grace. Right? He says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. But what? But is patient. I think Francis read out of his translation, long-suffering. And that's exactly the point. He can take it for a long, 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 long time, whereas we couldn't. And that's what Peter's reminding them of God's patience. What we feel as a delay, what the false teachers were saying, look, it's supposed to happen, right? Where is it? He's not coming back. What they thought as a delay, right, is in reality a gracious extension, a gracious extension of time allotted to us, so that what? At the end of verse 9 it says, for all to come to repentance. Some, the false teachers, were viewing the delay as a sign of God's weakness, God, you're not involved in history. You're not really caring about people. The opposite truth is this. God cares about people. That's why He extends time. That's why He's patient. That's why He delays the judgment of Christ, the coming of Christ, because He loves and cares for us that much, that He can wait over 2,000 years and maybe more. God's infinite patience in extending the time before the return of Christ and the judgment of this world, remember, is about His love. It's about His patience. That He suffers long. That He is tolerant. Right? But yet, we look at verse 9, and there's an interesting problem that comes up. If you look at verse 9, it says that He's not wishing for any to come, any to perish, (laughs) but for all to come to repentance. So the question remains, How come then everyone doesn't come to repentance? If God so loved the world, if God is so gracious, right? If God is so patient, if God's heart is, I want everyone to turn away from their sins, 
turn to faith in Christ, how come it's not happening? Right? How come not everyone is repenting? Doesn't 1 Timothy 4.1 say that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Doesn't it say that in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared in Christ and He's brought salvation to all men? Doesn't it say that in the Bible, that God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers? What do those passages mean? Well, the quick answer to this verse, the quick answer, it's a very complex issue, but we're going to cut through all that tangled knot and get right to the point. Because God desires or wishes, something doesn't mean that it has to happen. God is uncontrollably led by His desire. Does that make sense? If God wants people to be saved and not everyone is saved, it does not make Him a less of a God. It does not make Him heartless. It does not make Him fickle. It does not make Him cruel. Right? It, in fact, highlights His love, highlights His grace, highlights His mercy that He would want those who would hate Him and be hostile to Him to come to Him. Right? Even though all they want to do is run away from Him, but all He wants to do is snatch them and bring Him to Himself. Secondly, God wanting all men to be saved and not perished is a use of human emotions to describe God. Right? We cannot fully understand what it means that God desires all men to be saved. We don't understand what it means that it, when it says God is not wishing for any to repent. I'm not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. On our human level, we think, oh, I want such and such a person to come to Christ. I want my parents. I want my brother. I want my husband. I want my wife. I want my children to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And that's a good and godly desire. But at the level of divinity, at the level of God, we cannot fully comprehend what that desire means for Him. But it's a way for the Scripture writers to accommodate for us uh, to make it somehow parallel or similar to what we feel. So they ascribe that to God. It doesn't make it any less real of an emotion. right? doesn't mean it's some, something vastly different. It's not. But in terms of our full and deep comprehension of what it means that God doesn't want unbelievers to perish in hell, we won't understand. But we know that it means God is gracious. We know that it means God is good and God is loving. God wants all to repent, but every man, right, will stand by their own actions. Every man will give an accounting before the Lord, not for someone else's life, but for mine and for yours. Each and every person there will say your name and stand before Christ. But to solve the dilemma of verse 9, we want to touch upon what's really happening here. And it's important to look at verse 9 carefully. And notice that he says that he's patient toward who? Toward you. He said he's patient towards you. He's patient towards believers. Remember, he's addressing the church here. He's not addressing the false teachers. He's not addressing unbelievers. He's addressing you. Peter is writing to the church. And then he says, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so, when we think about the all and the any, we need to think about it in light of the you. What he's talking about what the real issue is, is about believers. About believers to come to repentance. Right? Who is God patient towards? He's patient towards believers who need to repent of this false teaching. Who are in danger of perhaps showing that they were never really saved at all. Not that they would lose their salvation because we don't hold to that. We believe that the Bible teaches that 
If you're truly saved, you will always remain truly saved. But the problem is, is that this, this uh, influx of false teaching might expose the fact that you are indeed just mere professors, mere pretenders to the faith, and not genuine Christians. So Peter is urging them and warning them, remember God's patience. Turn the ship around. Otherwise, if you continue in this direction, the end result will be you were never saved at all. Not that you had lost your salvation, but that you were never truly born again. And that is a real threat that Peter is addressing here. Now, as we've examined the delay of God's judgment, in verse 10, Peter gets right into it. He says, I've given you two arguments that Christ will return. The world is not going to stay the same. But I want to show you now. I want to give you an assertion, a vivid picture of what the return of Christ is going to look like. Make no mistake, God is patient. But don't forget that Christ is returning. It may be 1,000 years, 2,000 years, and so far it has been 2,000 years, but make no mistake, the end is coming. And so there are four features under this display of God's judgment that he presents to his readers. And the first is this, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I think in uh, our brother's translation it said like a thief in the night. And he's probably alluding to when Christ said it will come like a thief in the night, that the end of the world will come like a thief. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 is a crystal clear cross-reference to this passage. That the day of the Lord indeed will come like a thief. The idea here, and catch this, is so important, is of imminence. Imminence, I-M-M-I, imminence. Meaning any momentness. That the return of Christ can happen at any moment. That it's imminent. That it's always looming, but we don't know exactly when. But it's always there. Here's some New Testament verses on this important doctrine of imminency. James 5.8 You too be patient, strengthen your hearts. Why? Why should we be patient and strengthen our hearts? For the coming of the Lord is at hand, is near. 1 Peter 4.7 Peter alludes it to in his first letter. The end of all things is at hand. The idea is that Christ is at the door and his hand is on the doorknob. We just don't know when he's turning it. Right? Maybe he's turning it just a little bit but he's right there, right about to come. And that could be at any moment. That's the idea. A very key verse in all this is the famous rapture passage of 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. Note that in that verse, Paul includes himself in the generation that could experience the event of Christ taking up his, uh, 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 taking up his sheep. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, we, we who are alive, and remain until the coming of the Lord. So in his mind, it was always there. I could be alive because Christ is coming at any moment, at any time. There are no signs. There are no warnings further mentioned in any of these passages. And any of the passages that talk about eagerly waiting, you know, those passages that talk about looking for, hoping for, expecting, those generally all support this doctrine of the any moment coming of Christ. And interestingly enough, Peter does not, you know, we can't read this text and try to um, make some sort of end times chart. You know, he's going to come exactly this and that, and after the rapture, this is going to happen. That's not Peter's point. Peter is not trying to do a whole theological lesson on the end times. All he's saying is this, Christ can come back at any moment. Okay? That's his main point. As a thief comes unexpectedly and breaks into your house or into your car, Christ is going to come unexpectedly and suddenly. Secondly, 
Not only is it like a thief, but the heavens will pass away with a roar. This is the cosmic cataclysm that has never been seen before and never will be seen again, where the universe, everything outside of the earth, will pass away with a roar. Everything. When we look up into the sky, all of it and beyond, extending out of our solar system, this is a general word for all the skies and beyond, all the realms, outer space, all of it will pass away with a roar. And the idea there is the crackling sound made by a huge fire, right? The sky, outer space, dissolved by some unimaginable cosmic fireball. And that's the picture. Thirdly, he says, not only will the heavens be uh, destroyed or pass away with a roar, but in verse 10, continuing, he says that the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The elements. And of course, he's talked about heavens. Now he's talking about the earth. So this physical globe and all that's in it, right? All, all of nature, all the seas, all the deserts, mountains, volcanoes, tectonic plates, everything that is of this earth will be destroyed with intense heat. Every molecule, every atom will be destroyed by this divine inferno. And Peter is just piling it on. He's like, it's not enough that it comes like a thief in the night. It's not enough that the heavens will pass away with a roar. But on top of that, every element, the basic building blocks of this earth, will be destroyed with intense heat. And lastly, he says that the earth and its works will be burned up. The earth and its works. And so he's talked about the heavens. He's talked about the earth. And now he's talking about the stuff that men have made. It's interesting that at the end of verse 10, many of your translations will say, will be burned up. Uh, I don't want to get into this right now, but it seems like comparing the best manuscript evidence, the better translation would be, will be discovered, will be laid bare, will be exposed, will be uncovered. Right? The idea of something being shown for what it really is. So what Peter is saying is that what mankind has built and established the physical signs of our existence, of our culture, of our lifestyle, all of that is going to be uncovered for what it really is by the purifying and purging fire of God. All of man's monuments and trophies and everything that comes from our hands will be eliminated. Right? These things that we love, that we live for, that we save up and buy, that define who we are, define our culture, define our world, all of that in a cosmic firestorm, right? will be revealed for what they really are before a just and holy God. And they will be revealed as inconsequential, as insubstantial, as nothing. Will the end of the world come by asteroid? Will it come by a nuclear holocaust? Or as some scientists say, in what, six, nine, ten billion years, the sun will run out of its fuel, so to speak. It will die. And with the death of the sun, the death of the earth is right in tow. No, there needs to be something external to the universe to destroy this universe in order to change it radically. And that something is indeed our God in heaven and the return of Christ. As the true and living Lord and Savior comes back, this is what's going to happen. And Peter is trying to comfort and encourage believers, remember. He's trying to exhort them, urge them on to repentance, urge them on to right doctrine and right living. And he paints a picture of the most perhaps bleakest thing imaginable, the end of all things. 
But he's really doing it to remind them that indeed that they are God's people, that if truly they come and repent, that if they hold on to Christ as Lord and Savior, these things will not affect them because their stock in the world is nothing. Here's some quick applications for the first two points. In light light of the delay in God's judgment, what needs to happen is we need to correct our wrong view of God. False teachers laugh at the delay of God, but we need to be thankful and appreciate God's patience and slowness. We need to appreciate His sovereign, loving, long-suffering control over all of us and all of mankind and indeed the entire universe. The question is, can you appreciate His sovereignty? Can you appreciate that He's in control? We need to also thank God profusely because He's given us time. He's given all of us time to bear spiritual fruit and make certain about His calling and His choosing of you. In 2 Peter 1.10, says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, and He's talking to believers, to make certain about His calling and choosing of you, because as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. As long as you show spiritual fruit, as long as you're continuing to grow in Christ, you will never fall away from the faith, because you will prove that indeed you are a true believer. We need to be thankful that this grace period has, given, has been given to us. Thirdly, I mean, this is a big boost for evangelism and missions. The delay, yes, it's really for believers or professing believers. But the, but the fact is that God has offered salvation to everyone. God does not want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, ultimately. That ultimately, He wants sinners to recognize that, that they are sinners, recognize that they've offended Him, Recognize that they must now turn away from their sins and turn their lives over to Him and place their childlike faith in Jesus Christ, believing that He died and that He rose again three days later, victorious over death. It gives us a great boost. This patience, yes, it's for us, but it's for us now to maximize that patience and go out and preach the gospel and declare it and live it boldly every moment of our lives. And fourthly, This whole idea of saving the saved, saving the saints. I picked this up from John Piper, but it's the idea that just because you profess Christ and you even even appear to live as a Christian on on the outside, ultimately, we don't know until you die, until the end, if you've maintained your true faith all the way. We don't know if you've truly persevered. And that is why, if you read the New Testament carefully, That is why so many times the apostles are exhorting the believers to continue, to abide, to persevere, to maintain, to stay steadfast. Why? Because he knows that the moment they are no longer steadfast, they are in danger of showing themselves to be apostates. That is, those who held a conviction at one point and then turned away from that conviction, never having been truly saved. And he is urging them and exhorting them Right? To be saved. You are saved, yes, but continue to be saved. Right? And that is where our sanctification takes place. And that's the whole idea of spiritual fruit and good deeds being born out in your life. Stay saved. And as a church, that is our job. As we come, up, come across one another and we see sin in each other's life, it's not just, you know, oh, that brother, he's just, he's just that kind of guy. He's just a, a sinner and we've got to let him go. You know, that's just his personality. You know, he, we can't help it. It's just him. He's been like that for 10 years. 
our job is, no, this brother is in danger. This sister is in danger, is in serious jeopardy of showing themselves to not have been saved at all. And after that, there is no repentance. The Bible teaches that there is no repentance for true apostates. And that, to put the fear of God in our hearts, to make sure that each and every one of us, in our flock groups, in our small groups, you know, as we talk to one another and we see what's going on in each other's life, to be honest, to be real, and to be vulnerable with each other. Because, beloved, we're not saved until we're saved. It's not over until it's really over. We don't give up at one moment. We don't plateau. We don't arrive. We don't say, 50 years, it's been a good long run. I think I'm going to throw the towel in now and cruise to the end. No, we never cruise. We never stop. We, we stay steadfast lest we fall away from that and show that we were never saved at all. So believers, let's continue to exhort one another. Well, those are some of the applications for the delay. And let me just give you one in light of the display of God's judgment. In verse 10, that's what's going to happen. My application to you, my question to you this morning is, have you forgotten about the imminent return of Christ? Have you forgotten that it's an any moment return? That it can happen at any time? Sounds kind of kooky to some of us, right? Sounds kind of bizarre, almost fantastical. And to some extent, I can understand that. I can understand why it would be. It's such a radical change. Something so dramatic is going to happen that we can't even imagine. But may I venture to suggest that why we have forgotten, why we have neglected this important doctrine is because we don't like it, (laughs) because we love ourselves too much, because we are too comfortable in this world to think that, you know, bam, like a lightning bolt, it could happen at any moment. It scares us. Not because it's in and of itself scary. Why is it scary? Because I don't want to leave all this stuff. I love my life. I love my stuff. I love my things. I love going places, doing things. I love all this. Why would I want to give it up? Might I suggest to you that the hold on this world, the hold that the world has on your heart and all of us is too strong. That's why we forget about the doctrine of imminency. Christ is coming back. And so because of that, each day, each hour, each moment is precious. You know, the, the world says carpe diem, make each day count for yourself, live it to the fullest. You should make each day count for eternity because every man is eternally responsible for every moment of your life. And that's the truth. That's the bottom line. When you go to bed at night, you don't know you're going to wake up. When you wake up in the morning, you don't know you're going to get back home. The bottom line is this. Every hour of your life counts in God's eyes. Seems stern, seems a little forbidding, seems a little scary, and it should be. It should put the fear of God in us, the right fear of God in us. Not that we run away from it, but now we step up to the plate and we're going to hit this thing. We step up and we say, all right, make it count. Every moment is precious. Every moment is unique. And meditating on this truth of the any momentness of the coming of Christ will transform our conduct. And that's what 11 and 13 are all about about the coming of Christ at any moment, sharpening our lives so that we, we could become holy weapons in the hand of God, so that we can become instruments of righteousness and truth in the hands of our Lord. Well, the third point in our outline is this, the demands of God's judgment. God is coming. God is judging. What are the demands on our lives? Right? And here they are. The first demand is this. In verse 
12. We must be hastening the coming of Christ. Hasten the coming of Christ. Speed up the coming of Christ. And we'll get into that. But in verse 11, he says that all these things are going to be destroyed. Therefore, what sort of people ought you to be? It's kind of like an exclamation. You should be such a, such a people. This kind of people, right? In holy conduct and godliness. He reminds them that God's people are to be holy and godly. And in uh, verse 11 at the end there with holy conduct and godliness, it's in the plural. And so it's this idea that our holiness and our godliness can be exhibited in many ways. Peter's job here is not to give us a do's and don'ts list. Christ is coming back. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And we run through this checklist of sanctification and then we're done. No, he's giving them a general outline, kind of a, just a sketch be holy, be godly, be separated unto God and reflect the character of God in your life. And as you do this, you are to be looking for and hastening. The beginning of verse 12. Looking for and hastening. It's better to look at these two words almost as one idea. Two words conveying one major idea. And the idea is this. Have an attitude of eager expectancy so that it speeds up Christ's coming. Now, the question that immediately pops up is, didn't you just say we don't know when it's coming back? How can we speed it up? Isn't that kind of overstepping boundaries, like we're stepping and treading upon God's sovereignty? Well, in one, if you look at it one way, yes it is. But really what it is is this, that God in His sovereignty has ordained that believers' holiness and godliness will be all a part, okay, will all play a part in bringing about the coming of Christ. Does that make sense to you? Just like prayer. When we pray, we know God knows everything before we even pray, Jesus said, right? He knows what we need. When we pray, we already know that God has predetermined everything in the world. We know that. But why do we pray? We pray because we know that God in His sovereignty has ordained that through our prayers, what He has preordained will come about. And so likewise, God has ordained when Christ is coming back, and only He knows. But as we be holy, as we are godly, that is a part of God's sovereign plan to bring about the coming of Christ. And so the more holy you are, the more holy I am, the more godly we all are, the more quickly the any moment coming of Christ will occur and we can be with Him and enjoy Him forever. In Acts 3, 19-20, Peter actually says very similar words to the Jews and he's preaching to them and he says, repent. He tells them, repent of your sins. Your sins will be wiped away if you repent. Why? The purpose is this. If you repent, God will send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. The same idea here. Right? As our continual uh, confession and rejection of sin in our lives and our continual adherence and allegiance and clinging to Christ and to holiness and godliness and reflecting Him in our daily life, what happens is this, that Christ will be sent. That will be hastened. It will be sped up. We still don't know when it will happen. There's still no signs. But it'll be that much faster. It'll be that much quicker and sooner. It seems that repentance can hasten Christ's coming. It seems that holiness or living a life that is submitted to His influence and His reign speeds up His coming. And it also seems that prayer 
speeds up his coming. Matthew 6.10, right? Thy kingdom come. You all pray that. You ever wonder why we ever pray? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in, on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Early believers wanted the kingdom of God to come because that's when truth, justice, and righteousness would reign forever and ever. They wanted the Messiah to come, to come now, to take over this whole world system. And so prayer is another way of hastening the coming of Christ. When we say Maranatha, you've ever heard of that word Maranatha? Come Lord Jesus or come Lord, our Lord come. It's made up of three Aramaic words. And it seemed to have become like a catchphrase or a slogan in the early church that they used to signal their belief in this doctrine of the coming of Christ at any moment or their desire and their hunger for Christ to come. The very end of the Bible, the second to last sentence, come Lord Jesus. He says, I am coming quickly. Right? You want to make it faster, right? Don't you? You want to hasten it up and speed it up? Well, repentance and prayer and holiness and godliness does actually hasten it. This is not just a pie-in-the-sky doctrine. This is real. As you live your, live your lives in separation from sin and completely devoted to God, it speeds it up. So not only is, the, is, is our demand to hasten the coming of God, but the last verse in this passage, verse 13, we hasten it and we look for it. We look for not only the coming of Christ, not only the judgment, but what comes out of that is in verse 13. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. By the time we get to verse 13, we've been swept through the awesome destruction of all things. We've come through the entire heavens and earth system being abolished. The verb destroy has been used three times, once in 10, once in verse 11, and once in verse 12. Is there anything left? But there is. In verse 12, Peter says, really, as we look towards the second coming, we're not just looking at the second coming and the destruction, but we're looking beyond that. And our hope is in the heavenly city. Our hope is in the place where righteousness supremely and exclusively dwells and makes its residence. This is, folks, the great Christian hope. This is what we hope for. This is what we believe. As we look at this verse, we have to remember that we're only passing through this world. We're looking for a better place. We're citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20, making a temporary pilgrimage through a world filled with sin, death, and depravity. Where suffering and misery abounds, where people place their hope and realize all too late that hope in something that is going to be destroyed is no hope at all. Because you can only hope for something, really, that you don't see. And what we don't see is Christ and our hope by faith is in Him and in Him alone. This promise of a new heavens and a new earth is found also in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 65:17. the prophet Isaiah, looking towards the future, towards the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom, sees the new heavens and the new earth. And in the New Testament, of course, the best description of the new heavens and new earth is in the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and up to chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Note that This is not just a new place, but this is a new place where righteousness dwells. The end of verse 13. This is a place literally where righteousness makes its home. Where righteousness makes and takes up its residence. Where justice and truth reign supreme. Where there is no hint of sin. 
where the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit dwell with believers and we dwell with Him, joyously submitting to His almighty reign, worshiping Him with all believers from all times, forever and ever, endlessly, growing in our understanding of Him, growing in our love, growing in our appreciation for Him. Is that the place where you want to be? At the end of the day, do you think about heaven? Do you think about the new heavens and the new earth? specifically in Peter's words, where righteousness dwells. Do you want to go there? Do you want to be at a place where all it's going to be is praising God 24-7, understanding Him, knowing Him, growing in appreciation of Him, plumbing the depths of a majestic God that we will never be able to plumb fully? Is that where you want to be? Ask yourself that question today. Because if that's not where you want to be, then get off the ship. Because that's where we're all headed. That's where we're going. This is the end of the line. There's a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This, this place is reserved exclusively for true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone else is excluded and shut out for all eternity. And honestly, honestly, only those who love God, only those who really love God would want to be at a place where the love of God is held up supremely and exalted every moment for all eternity. Do you love your God first and foremost above all things? If you don't, this is not the place for you. But if the love of God is something that is treasured in your heart, if the love of God propels you, if that's the motivation for your life, then, then by the grace of God, we will all be there together, singing His praises and worshiping Him forever and ever. May that be the joy and delight of your heart. Well, some concluding applications, really not only just for this point, but for all three points. And that first one is this. That we are called constantly to live in the light of the second coming. All right? Constantly. It's interesting. Do you remember how when the whole Y2K phenomenon, the madness and the craze happened, everyone's talking about the end of the world, and we got to stock up. They said, have three months... Uh, cash, right? Three months of cash available, have water, have first aid kits, flashlights to make sure, you know, and uh, some people may be building bunkers to get ready for the end and they're just holding there. And, and the clock ticked and my computer was still working and all of your computers were still working, right? Y2K, 9-11, you know, suddenly people got religion in them, right? When wars happen, international crises happen, the whole idea of the end it comes to the surface, even in, secular, uh, even in the secular media. The whole idea of the end and the, and the final coming, it all comes out in, in, the, in the media. Well, we shouldn't have those things propel us out of Christian slumber. We need to wake up now and to live alertly, live sensitively, live carefully, always. Why? Because it's at any moment. God doesn't require an international crisis to come down, right? Christ is not waiting for some spectacular human event to come down, No. The doctrine of imminency says, any time, any place, anywhere. The question is then, do you pray, Maranatha? Do you pray, our Lord, come? Come, Lord Jesus, thy kingdom, come. And do you mean it when you pray it? Is it on your mind? Because honestly, our lives are to be measured according to God's time scale. And if it is, if it's an any moment time scale, then always blinking, blinking, blinking in, our, in the back of our minds should be big, Red lights that say any moment, any moment, any moment. Because that's truth. That's reality. 
not I can measure out my life. I'm going to plan out all these things that I'm going to do in my life. 50 years old, 60 years old, 70, and I will die at 80 and cruise into retirement. You don't know. You don't know. That's the point that Peter is getting across and the New Testament is getting across. You don't know. So live in light of it. Secondly, is materialism and worldliness. Materialism and worldliness. Do you hold on to things or do things hold on to you? Does the world have an excessive foothold or grasp on your heart, on your thoughts and emotions? Does this world, what you dream about, what you hope for, you know, do you throw all your eggs in this basket right here, in this world, in this culture, in this life? John Wesley said this, Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible. Why? Lest it should find its way into my heart. And many of you know that John Wesley was one of the most generous and uh, giving people um, that had ever lived. But Wesley was people first, things last. Materialism says, use people, love things. That's the essence of materialism, right? Use people, love things. A biblical worldview that culminates in appreciating the any moment coming of Christ says, use things and love people, right? Anti-materialism would say fellowship, loving people, encouraging people, assembling together in the saints, edifying one another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another. Man, that's what gets my heart going. Not things, but people. Why? Because souls are on the line. Souls are on the line. Immortality is on the line. And secondly, kind of under materialism, would be if things don't hold on to you and you say, yeah, you know what, I hold on to the things. They don't have a grasp on me. The question is then, do you long for heaven? A longing for the things of this, things of this world will dull your appetite for heaven, will it not? If you are feverishly pursuing your career, feverishly pursuing your family, feverishly pursuing whatever it is that you want to pursue, and it's an earthbound thing, you're going to have a very low appetite for the great banquet that heaven is, that awaits you. How can you say with Asaph when you read Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. How can you and your, how can we in our right mind, when that song is played up here, sing that song with the right conscience? Whom have I in heaven but you? You can't take anything with you. You know, there's those guys who get buried like with their things and all that stuff. This guy, he loved to fix up cars so much that he died in a coffin that looked like a fixed up car. Man, that is really sad. You know, you can't take it with you. None of this stuff is going to last. You cannot take it with you. The question is, do you long for it? Do you long for God? Are you satisfied in Him and Him alone? The end of the world must have a purifying influence on our lives. First John 3.3 3 tells us that. You know, we don't see him as he is, but we will. And as we think about that, as we think about seeing Christ face to face, what that should do now is have a great purifying, sanctifying, making you holy kind of an influence where the dross is continually being removed, where all the leftovers of the old man are slowly but surely being cut away. 
C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letter said this, Prosperity knits a man to this world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. A love of this world and a relative ease and comfort in this life is an insidious disease that subtly blinds us to its ravaging effects on our spiritual life. It's subtle. It's so subtle, right? We're not talking about, none of us, we're not here talking about where you just go out and you're buying and buying and buying and living it up for this world. No. But, but true materialism and the love of this world, the relative comfort in this world, that things are nice and easy for you and you have that mentality, that is so subtle and so insidious. And yet all of that takes away and robs you of your longing for heaven. And, your, and it adds to your forgetfulness that it's all going to disappear. It's all going to be destroyed. When we think much of the world and little of the return of Christ, it is a potent recipe for shipwrecking our faith. It turns our true and certain hope in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a true and certain hope. It turns that into a false hope, a pipe dream, firmly entrenched in this world. And unfortunately or fortunately, this world is destined for one place, and that is the cosmic scrap heap. The junkyard. That's where this is all going. It's all going to burn. That should be our battle cry. That should be our mantra. Oh, I got in an accident. Well, it's all going to burn. You know, I lost my wallet. It's all going to burn. You know, this thing didn't work out the way you want it to. It's okay. It's all going to burn. Against the enemies of materialism, worldliness, and complacency, We need to rise up and say, it's all going to burn. I want something more than this. I want the greater pleasure. I want the greater joy. I want the greater happiness. I want the true and lasting satisfaction of my heart, and that is Christ, and to be with Him. Beloved, live in the burning reality of the coming of Christ. Live in it, because everything else around you is going to be burned up. Let's pray. Father God, we stand humbly before you, gripping our hearts because of a true fear of God that overcomes us as we think about the end and as we think about our lackadaisical attitude towards the end. Father, we forgive us for being complacent. Forgive us for finding our ease in this world rather than having a pilgrim mentality as we are passing through. Oh Lord God, may this attitude, this attitude of a sojourner, that we're just here for a little bit, May this attitude grip our hearts this morning that we may lay aside everything that does not contribute to giving you much glory, Lord. And may we honor you, may we love you, may we long for you so that our hearts would be ready and prepared to meet you when you should come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.